Exodus 30, beginning to read at verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two gold rings for it. Under its molding of two under its molding on two opposite sides of it you shall make them. They shall be holders for poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it in front of the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. Regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. The blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Then if we go to Exodus chapter 37... We have been doing that was the command to build. That was how God ordered it and designed it to be built and showed Moses the pattern by which he wanted it built. Now in Exodus 37, we read what Moses did with it. We begin at verse 25. He made the altar of incense of acacia wood. Its length was a cubit and its breadth was a cubit. It was square cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And he made a molding of gold around it and made two rings of gold on it under its molding on two opposite sides of it as holders for the poles with which to carry it. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He made the holy anointing oil also and the pure fragrant incense blended as by the perfumer. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word. And may we see clearly the, the shadow of things to come through Jesus Christ. We just pray that you'd bless Pastor Bob as he brings this to us, that we may see your word and see your blessing and your love for us and all these things. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Four things in regards to this particular piece of furniture that God ordered for his worship there in the tabernacle. One, the design. Secondly, the purpose for which this particular piece is made. Thirdly, the fulfillment. And then fourthly, what are the implications of this for our worship today? First of all, the design. It's not necessarily a very complicated piece of furniture. The size was simply one and a half foot square. So, not very big, not very large at all, and it stands only three feet tall. 
a relatively small piece of furniture, as we've kind of looked at all of them so far. Uh, outside that brazen altar, outside in the courtyard, at least everything within the tent so far has, has not carried with it a, a great significance of size. They are relatively small pieces of furniture. They, in that sense, they're not grandiose. This is, this is not God designing something that, that in that sense is overwhelming. They are overwhelming in their sense of beauty. And they are somewhat overwhelming in their sense of cost. When one begins to evaluate all of this gold work that is going on, plus all of the intricate design, uh, let us not look past the craftsmanship that is required to make that which is to be found here that God blessed uh, those men with, and others in the community of Israel as well, who were all part of, of this process. And so the size is relatively small. The materials are materials we have run into before within that holy place. This as well was to be made of that acacia wood and then overlaid with gold, as is everything so far within the tabernacle itself. Everything outside, you'll recall, has been bronze. Okay, that was the metal used there. Inside, it is gold to reflect the kingship and the lordship, and the majesty of the Lord God. There are a few extras that go along with this particular design. There is also the mention here of a molding. And once again, we, we're not sure, does that go around the top? Or is that some sort of ornate, decorative piece around the center of it. Uh, we are not quite sure, although if you look up on, on websites, uh, most uh, of those who, who have kind of tried to picture this put it around the top, which would make somewhat of a sense because you need to have some sort of means of holding, of containing that which is this is going to be used for as well. The one thing that, uh, that, that stands out here is the fact that it is to have four horns on the corners. It reminds us of the fact that that brazen altar on the outside also had to have those four horn-like projectiles on the corners, and so does this as well. And then there are the rings and the poles that are associated with this and the carrying of it as well. There are passages uh, later on when the Israelites begin the actual travel, when they actually pick up camp from Mount Sinai and begin their movement towards Canaan, that describe the way in which uh, these various pieces of equipment, uh, of furniture, I guess I should say, were, were to be transported, the coverings that were to go over them, so that none of this was on display to the Israelites as they... As they traveled, in other words, the regular, normal Israelite outside of the priest and high priest never saw these pieces of furniture except when they were being built. Once they're placed inside that tabernacle, they were never seen again by the Israelite. Only through that priesthood, only through the eyes of the priest these items to be seen. So that basically takes care of the design. Once again, not complex, not difficult to imagine or to understand.
Secondly, there is the purpose. And, and the purpose really is twofold. It's one, to offer. That's why it's called an altar. That's probably the similarity between why this and the altar that was in the courtyard both have the horns on it. It is understood. This is a place where an offering is going to take place, where there is fire and that fire is going to burn. It's going to consume something that is placed upon it as an altar. The fire, by the way, we are told in Leviticus 16, verse 12, is to be taken from the brazen altar outside. So it's not like they rekindle and remake and restart its own fire there in the tabernacle itself. But they're to take the fire, the coals, out of that brazen altar of burnt offerings. Those coals are to be brought into the tabernacle, placed on this altar of burnt offering, or on this altar of incense, and there, okay, to be burned. So it has two purposes. One, to offer. The second purpose is to offer incense. And this incense, it, 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 God is very particular here in regards to it. For, for of, of all the things we have looked at, yes, God has been particular and, and spells things out in detail in regards to each one of these pieces of furniture, how they're to be used, how they're to, like with the lampstand, how they're to be lit, the table of showbread, how the bread is to be prepared, when they're to take the old bread out, when they're to bring the new bread in. But when it comes to this particular item of furniture, God actually adds more to it. There is a lot of detail that goes into it because of this incense. Turn with me to the end of chapter 30 of Exodus. So we read about the altar of incense. When you come to verse 22 of chapter 30, it describes the anointing oil that is to be made. All of this has to be sprinkled with anointing oil. The priests all have to be sprinkled with anointing oil as well. But then when you come to verse 34, we read the, the, the way, the incense, the ingredients, the recipe that is to be used for the incense that is to be burned on this altar. Follow along. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stakti, and nakra, galabam, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part. And make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the ark in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make, according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume shall be cut off from his people. 
So here's this altar. God says, the incense that I want you to burn on this altar. I'll give you a list. Here's the list. You can't just add. You can't go, you know, we've been making this for six months now. Same old stuff. Let's add some lavender. Can't do it. Okay. Let's add another spice to this. Let's add another ingredient. No, whenever Aaron burns this incense, it is to be done according to this recipe. This is the only recipe for incense that you are allowed to have. So we have a list. You are to be exact. Equal parts. Not not a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that or a little bit more frankincense. No, exact. And no duplication. Did you notice the exclusion? The incense you shall make according to its composition. You shall not make for yourselves. So you see, they know what it is. They know the ingredients. But the ingredients that are to be used are to be used only on this altar of incense. You can't go home and go, you know, I know what the recipe is. I'm going to make some of my own. I don't understand why the priest gets to offer that. I don't get to do it. I want to do that. I, I want that. So I'll make up the same recipe and I'll have my own little incense burner going. And I'll burn my own. God says, no. You may not do that. In fact, if you're found to have done that, you're cut off from the people. You're excommunicated. You have no part of the people of God. You are to be cast out of the camp. You're not part of this covenant community anymore. I mean, that, that's it's pretty rigorous, isn't it, that God is setting down. Here is my worship. I want this incense, and you can't have it. You may not have it for yourselves. And we know how severe God was about this. See, it is at this altar that we're studying here in Exodus chapter 30, that Nadab and Abihu approach in Leviticus chapter 10 with their strange fire, with their strange incense before the Lord. They're going about their duty as they were supposed to. In the morning, they put the incense on. In the evening, they put the incense on. For some reason or other, in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu decide they're going to do their own thing. We're going to offer our own type of blend or we're going to do it in a way not prescribed by the Lord and what do we read and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them they died in that holy place they probably got censers in their hand they're at the altar but they're offering something that God did not ask for fire consumes them They die. 
their clothes are not singed. Their clothes don't even smell like smoke. But their bodies have been burned. They have died in the consuming fire of the Lord. God is really, really serious about this altar of incense. In verse 8 of chapter 30 of Exodus, we, we read in our, ES, or in our ESV versions, and when Aaron sets the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it as a regular incense offering before the Lord. Regular meant in, in that case every morning, every evening. There's, there's perhaps some of your versions that I think use a little bit clearer term, and that's the idea of perpetual. It is to keep going. It is to never go out. This is something that God says, I want that incense on. Morning, noon, and night. I want that incense on 24-7. I want Aaron and his sons in there in the morning. I want them in there in the evening. I always want this incense burning. So we have the design. Small, little altar. We have its purpose to offer incense. That's what it's there for. And we should note its placement. The altar of incense, okay, if you remember where the, the tabernacle was always facing east, okay, as we enter the tabernacle, the golden lampstand is always on our left, the table of showbread is always on our right, right in front of us is the altar of incense. Immediately behind the altar of incense is the veil. On the other side of the veil, in that most holy place, is the Ark of the Covenant. This piece of furniture is the closest to the presence of God. And where the Exodus 30 kind of brings us there. You, this is where you put it. I want it right in front of me. I, I want it to be placed that close to me. I don't want it outside, I want it inside, and I want it right up by that veil. So even though this is the last piece of furniture that God is commanding to be made, it is first in terms of his presence. Do you already see a certain text coming out, the last shall be first? Okay, God's demonstrating that glorious truth even in the arrangement of the furniture. The last thing I mention is the first thing in terms of my presence. The last, indeed, shall be first. So where do, what do we find here as far as its fulfillment? Well, one of the ways in which for us to understand that is to understand the significance of incense. Okay? It's there to, to burn incense. I think if we understand what the incense represented, we begin to understand the fulfillment. So let me let's let's turn to three passages. Let's go to Psalm 141 first. Let's start there. Psalm 141.
Psalm of David, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as an evening sacrifice. So David is saying, this act, Lord, interpret this act in my worship as a sacrifice, and Lord, may the prayers that I am offering to you, as those prayers we we think about being lifted up, God says, David says, think about them as that incense. As that incense was lifted before the Lord. As that incense is burning. As that little trail of smoke from from incense makes its way up. David says, may my prayers be like that to you. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 1. Gospel according to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be at verse 8. 1, 8. Zechariah in the temple, about ready to receive the announcement of the birth of a son. Prior, verse 8. Now when he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So what is happening? David is saying, Lord, may my prayers be to you like incense. The people of Israel gather at the time of Zechariah in the morning when they know that the priest goes in to offer the incense. That becomes a time of prayer at the temple. When the priest comes to offer that incense again in the evening, the people gather again for their evening prayers. So you have the morning, you have the evening. Idea of prayers ascending. Probably where Spurgeon got his idea from, right? Okay, morning and evening prayer. Written a famous devotional in regards to that. It's following that pattern in the morning, in the evening people of Israel. So once again, we have a connection between this idea of incense burning and the idea of prayer brought to us very clearly in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 5. We're in the vision of the scroll and the lamb. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So no longer is there sort of a, eh, there's sort of kind of a connection. Now there is a connection. The incense 
is equated with prayer. Same thing happens, Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. So what is God picturing there? He's picturing prayer. Okay? It seems even the Old Testament people of God understood the picture. But that fulfillment of that idea of prayer is found in Christ, isn't it? That's where we find that fulfillment. How? Two parts. One, we find that fulfillment in his sacrifice. Remember those four horns that were on this altar of incense? Once a year, we were told, the high priest was to take blood and he's to go to that altar and he's to put the blood on those four horns. What blood? The blood of a sacrifice that is offered on the day of atonement for the sins of the people. That blood was to go on those horns. In other words, the incense without the blood meant nothing. See, unless there was blood on the horns of the altar, this was just burning incense. The prayers needed cleansing. The prayers needed perfecting. Those bringing their prayers needed to have their sins cleansed. And the Lord would see the blood on the horns of the altar and know that the sacrifice had been made. And it was indeed a sweet smell to the Lord. Why? Because of the combination? No. Because the blood was on the horns of the altar. That's what makes this beautiful, sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. The sacrifice of Christ poured out is what makes prayer beautiful to the Lord. As the people of Israel sought to worship the Lord, as they sought to commune with Him, God says, I want to do that, but there needs to be blood. Not just blood to enter my presence. That too is needed. To get in the door, there needs to be blood. But to come into my presence to draw near to me, to come to my throne of grace, needs to be blood, horns of that altar. But not only do we see this fulfillment in the sacrifice of Christ, we actually see it in the work of Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, 34. 
Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, the sacrifice, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is the one who is the incense. He is the perfect combination of that which God desired him to be. Therefore, he as the incense who has given himself, who has sacrificed himself, is able to intercede for us, for he is indeed that exact blend. That's why God didn't want him to do it at home. Because it pointed to his son. It pointed to Christ. It pointed to a one sacrifice that was needed. God says, this isn't some home remedy for you to use. This is about my worship. This is about something particular. This is about something unique. It's about the intercession of my son. And of course, we have seen it. We've looked at it before. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We read the following. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Okay, you've got to hear the language of Hebrews. Those who draw near to God. Where do you draw near to God? You draw near to God at the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's presence. Where do you draw near to God? Well, the next thing, the next thing from the Ark of the Covenant, which we'll look at this evening, is that altar of incense. If you want to draw near to God, you've got to do it through the altar of incense. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through his sacrifice. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The incense is never to go up. Christ always is interceding. See, God was picturing in this, in this small little altar that in his worship, Christ is the needed and necessary component even for our life of prayer. So from there, let's go to three implications. What does this have to do with us today? We, we don't burn incense. That's why we do. there is a reason we don't burn incense. Christ has come. He is the incense that God desires. When you, when you go to a church and they're burning incense, there is something they are saying that is lacking in the work of Christ. Okay? So, so when you go to those other church services for weddings, funerals, whatever, and they're burning their incense, they're saying Christ is not enough. See, we still have to do this because Christ doesn't complete it. We believe that Christ has completed it. Therefore, we have no incense. But yet, if God's going through all this trouble of having this, this, this altar constructed, going through all of these details about how this altar was to be used, and then repeats it again to tell us that Moses built the thing exactly as he had told him, there must be something that God wants us today to take away from it for our worship. 
Let me offer three again. One, God requires an exact worship. God requires an exact worship. Yes, Christ fulfills. But that doesn't mean somehow we can be sloppy. That doesn't mean we can somehow now be innovative. That doesn't mean now that all of a sudden, because Christ came as the one who is the fulfillment of the altar of incense, that that means no holes barred. We can do whatever we want. Now, God still, based upon what he is doing here, I, Jehovah, change not. His character doesn't change. That which he desires out of worship doesn't change. What do we see when we see this altar of incense? We see an exactness. God desires an exactness. That's why we hold to that thing that we refer to as the regulative principle of worship. Simply stated, only that which God commands in his word is that which is allowable in a worship service. Only that which God requires, only that which God states in his word. Every part of our worship service, where it begins order of worship, call to worship, down through doxology, are that which you find in God's word. And exactness. Not everybody holds to that. We in the Reformed faith are supposed to hold to it. Those in the Presbyterian camp are, are supposed to hold to it. But, but I can tell you that, that that's eroding. That's fallen apart. People who are supposed to be people who understand the exactness that God desires in worship have decided on their own that that's no longer God's requirement. Others, throughout their existence as a church, it's not a falling away, it's just their church has held to the principle of, well, if God doesn't condemn it, we can do it. If God doesn't say, no, you can't do that, it's allowable. You say, well, boy, that opens up the door to a lot of stuff, doesn't it? There's a lot of things that God's word doesn't condemn that then you could use. We could show videos. We could show movies. You could say, Pastor Bob is now going to sit down. We're, gonna, we're just going to watch a movie, okay, for the rest of the time. God's word doesn't condemn it. God's word doesn't say no. Therefore, we can do so. That's the way they think. That's why you'll go to some worship services, and particularly of, of other faiths, not of the Reformed or Presbyterian camp, and you'll say, what's going on here? They don't hold to the exactness of the worship of God. Or there are those who say, only that which is allowable in the church is that which the church tells us we can do. So they don't, even, they don't even interject God. It's not, what does God want? What doesn't God want? They, they just go to, what does the Pope say? What do our cardinals say? What do our bishops say? We'll go with whatever the church tells us is allowable and is acceptable. Okay? 
Remember when, when the, the Catholic Church made the transition from Latin to English and, and the uproar? Okay. Why'd they do it? Church said it. Did they find a scriptural reason? No. Was it some biblical reason they said? No. Church just said it. So the church gets to decide how God is worshipped. And although we would perhaps say, wait, that sounds pretty strange. My guess is that most churches in the United States operate under that principle. It just becomes whatever that church, local church, decides is going to be part of the worship. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. If our God was so determined that in His worship that He was going to outline the exact recipe of the incense that was going to be burned, and He didn't want any changes to that recipe upon penalty of death, do you think God is is still a God who desires an exactness? I want to be worshipped in the way that I desire to be worshipped. Not the way you think smells good. Not the combination of incense that you like. I want the combination that I decree. There's one. Second principle is God requires a name in prayer. Turn with me to John. Chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verse 13. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now note, the idea of glorifying the Father has to do with prayer in Jesus' name. If we want to worship the Father, then we need to be praying in Jesus' name. That's a clear, that's an implication for worship. We should never offer a prayer that is not in the name of Jesus, that is not in the name of Christ. I have it on pretty good source of information that one of the Christian Reformed churches in the Grand Rapids area had a, or was going to have, a worship service with the Muslim mosque down the street. Now you ask me, how's that going to work? How can you, you how, how do you pray in a joint service with Muslims? Well, we'll say Allah. That's not what God requires. God requires that you use the name Jesus. Well, we don't want to use the name Jesus because that would be offensive to the Muslims. So what are you doing then? God requires a name in prayer. We don't want to offend people, so we won't use the name. Then what aren't you doing? You aren't doing that which God requires. If you're not doing that which God requires, you're not worshiping. 
name, Jesus Christ, so that as we come before him, it is as if we are before that altar of incense. We are before Christ, who is taking our prayers to the very presence of the Father. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect Mohammed. Heresy. False. I'm surprised that the fire of the Lord does not come out. Over what people today will allow. It's part of their worship. But God is so specific. Third, God does desire, though, that we pray. This is to be part of worship. We are to be pouring out our hearts before the Lord. The Lord says, when you want to worship me, I want to tabernacle with you, I want to dwell with you. Part of that dwelling is I want you to make for me an altar of incense. I want prayer to be an integral part of my worship. God desires that we worship. He desires that dialogue. He desires that we just don't come and sit in silence. Waiting for God to speak. He says, come, speak. Come, pour out your heart. Come, pray. That's what I want to. I want to engage you in a dialogue. I want to speak with you. When Adam is walking with God in the garden, this is a dialogue that is taking place. When Enoch is communing with the Lord, this is a dialogue that is taking place. God gives to us this avenue of prayer that we might dialogue with the Lord our God so that we can Without ceasing. For this is the will of God. Amen.